Welcome. This is Dr. Jeff Smith. Hey, great to be here and participate once again with Music Tech community. And thank you, Brian, for hosting uh, this is a special event. Thrilled to be part of it once more. Uh, talked to Brian earlier, and, and we felt that it might be helpful to talk about the trajectory of my own startup from Stanford to Smuel. Perhaps along the way, there are a few nuggets that would be beneficial to some of you folks that are also building and starting companies. Uh, that's really the spirit of what I'm trying to accomplish in 15 minutes this morning. So if we start, uh, if you look back at music of the past century, it's evolved quite a bit. Here's Mahler's eighth. And here's IMT Pain using this Mule application to put auto-tune on the iPhone. If you think about what Edison was doing when he invented the recording cylinder, he, he didn't think people were going to record music. He thought it was a dictation machine. And similarly, if you talk to Steve Jobs, when he was designing the iPhone, I'm not sure he thought it was a device used to create music either. I think he thought it was a phone that people would talk into. But here we are. And we have this almost new revolution taking place on mobile devices of how people are accessing and consuming music, and in our case, even creating music. Let me take you back 100 years ago, one of the early people using Edison's new recording cylinder. Here's Bela Bartok, composer, uh, pianist, ethnomusicologist, in fact, one of the first who's out in a Transylvanian village here recording folk music at its source. Um, it turns out Bartok was really interested in studying intrinsic music. What was really stirring those atavistic impulses in some of us, what resonates culturally. And this study of music, which he, didn't, he captured and cataloged, informed a lot of his compositions in music. In part, because of Bartok, I decided to go back late in life and pursue a PhD in music uh, at Stanford. Why? I was interested in trying to learn more about why people engage in music with the goal of bringing music engagement to more people across our society. Along the way, I met my co-founder, Dr. Go Wong, and here's the Stanford Laptop Orchestra, otherwise known as Slork. And we both needed a startup like we needed a hole in the head. He was a tenure-track professor, I was a PhD student, and nine years later, here I am, CEO of Smule, 50 million monthly active users, creating, singing, playing over 20 million songs a day on their mobile phones. Um, last year, we crossed 100 million in sales as far as our run rate. Our goal and vision was to bring music back to its roots as a creative, expressive medium. Here's some of the applications that we've developed that you might be familiar with. All told, there will be seven billion performances using Smule applications this year. So obviously there are many factors influencing startups and um, I feel a little gauche almost making this presentation. Truth be told, I was published in Entrepreneur Magazine telling people, mama, don't let your babies grow up to be entrepreneurs. I think it's a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. I'm not sure it's worth it. In fact, I'll consider this talk successful if I convince one of you who is planning a startup to not do it. But if you think about the trajectory from Stanford to Smule or other um, startup trajectories, there's, there's a number of factors that influence the formation of companies. Certainly one is community, the set of people you're around culture, access to capital. I'm going to touch on those themes, but the main theme I want to focus on is music education. And I think there's a couple of insights here that might be relevant. Well, let me take you back in time to the formation of Smule. This is 2008. Um, Symbian was the leading mobile operating system. Nokia had 50% market share. It appears that Ericsson had just hired the designer from Genie Garage Door Openers to help them design their new phone. 
you could see the obvious similarities between those two devices. Uh, I still prefer the Genie, but I understand those that like the Sony Ericsson, it was a fine phone in its day. Uh, we were on the verge of a financial crisis. Our US presidents back then weren't using social media. Perhaps it was the perfect time to create a startup focused exclusively on iOS. You notice there's not an iPhone on this slide. So let me share with you the slides from our first pitch in 2018. Here's the title slide. I was really proud of this until I put it up on display in front of the partnership at Bessemer, and then they all started laughing. And at that point, I realized I'm going to wait a little longer before I ask them for the check to invest in my new company. Truth be told, we've since hired many graphic designers, and for whatever reason, they're not asking me to help them with the work that they're doing today for the company. We put up the slide showing the growth of the iPhone relative to the iPod, and we said, guys, this might be big, at which point one of the partners raised his hand and said, hey, Jeff, in India, Nokia means mobile phone. Nokia is going to sell more phones in one week than Apple will in an entire year. Are you out of your Vulcan mind? I don't think he said Vulcan, though. And I could readily conceded both of his points. By the way, that partner is no longer uh, with the firm. But it was a fairly bold move <laughs> to make the bet on Steve. Um, we didn't have any market research to look at applications because the App Store didn't exist when we started Smules, so we did the research on the BlackBerry. Here you can see the market research slide we put together in the top 10 apps that were available on the BlackBerry for sale. My favorite was number three, color your trackball, where your trackball changes colors based on who's texting you. You know, your girlfriend one color, uh, your boss a different color, maybe red. Well, so it's interesting. Then Apple launched the App Store, and we have this new distribution plus iTunes, where literally right around Q1 of 08, Apple took over as the number one distributor of music in 2008. Our goal was to create this fabric, this single network connecting people through creating music, group expression, social engagement, but interesting, anonymous <laughs> social engagement. Surprisingly, Bessemer wrote the check, and we built Smule. And here we are nine years later, and I hope they're right. By the way, Forbes magazine believes that Smule has changed the music industry completely. In this process of democratizing the creation and the distribution of music, of giving music in some ways back to the people. Well, let me digress for a moment and talk a little bit about the formation of the startups and the importance of communities. If you think about Silicon Valley, it's interesting, most of the startups were from people who weren't born here. Uh, here's a slide of the top seven tech companies. If you drill down on Intel, and I'm cheating a little bit because technically Andy Grove wasn't a co-founder, but come on guys, he really was, he was there 30 years. Uh, but you have Noyce, Moore, and Grove. If you think about Cisco, you have Bosick, Lerner, and I'm going to throw in Andy Bechtelsheim as well. He technically wasn't a co-founder of Cisco, but all of these guys were working together at Stanford. And I'm pretty sure Andy was the one that came up with most of these ideas, even though they continue to litigate here 30 years later. Steve was born in San Francisco, but his mom had just moved to San Francisco from Syria. Um, mom's from Wisconsin. Dad's from Syria. If you think about my management team at Smule, uh, I'm from Utah. We have two from the Bay Area, which is exceptional. Most from Asia, one from Israel. 
So you think about this community and how important it is to the formation of startups and the fact that here we are coming together, exchanging ideas and collaborating. It's seminal, I think, to the formation of these businesses. It's also seminal to our community. If you look at Smule's community of 50 million users today creating this music, only 20% are from North America. The other 80% are from the rest of the world. I remember somebody asking me, well, why do you have so many users in Asia? And I said, well, maybe it's because that's where most of the people in this world live. There's a parallel here with music. If you think about Vienna in the 19th century, we had some of the top composers living and working together in this city. In fact, truth be told, I trace my own line of piano through my teacher at Stanford who studied at the Vienna Conservatory, whose line goes back through uh, Liszt, Czerny, Beethoven, and Haydn. Yet, of these major composers who worked and collaborated in Vienna, only one was born in Vienna, Schubert. You know, Beethoven was Bonn, uh, Brahms was from up in Hamburg. And so there is a parallel here of people from diverse backgrounds coming together, exchanging ideas, and then developing new ideas. And I guess the point here, and it's a statement of the obvious I recognize, but in today's world, I think it's still worth making. Diversity counts. And maybe some of the most innovative ideas are born from this diversity. Well, can you teach entrepreneurism? Is this something you could study? Here's Stanford Center for Entrepreneurial Studies. After I published my uh, article in Entrepreneur Magazine, they don't invite me to teach there anymore for some reason. I'm still over teaching classes at Stanford's Karma, the Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics. Um, it's interesting, though, the top four entrepreneurs of our era did not study entrepreneurism. Um, in fact, they're all college dropouts. Myself, I didn't study innovation. I didn't study entrepreneurism. I studied computer science and music. In fact, here's some details from my dissertation. I did a study where I measured the viscosity of music, I know, fancy term, but we're trying to look at how music is traveling across different cultures in the world. We built a statistical model to measure how likely a given genre was to travel from one culture to another culture. In some ways, inverting the very model Bartok built 100 years ago of studying music at its source in the folk music. Well, from this graph, you can see that classical music is viscous in China, which means that classical music, Western classical music, that is to say, doesn't really travel well through China, in contrast to, say, Tokyo. Uh, video game music, however, is not viscous. It travels extremely well. In fact, we found this to be the genre of music that would permeate any culture. Saudi Arabia, sure. The Philippines, absolutely. And here's a chart that talks about video music um, engagement across some of the regions we are measuring in the study, and you'll see that not more in China compared to classical music. Um, an interesting, surprising amount down in the southern tip of Korea. The same is true if you look at Christmas music. Christmas music does really well in the southern tip of Korea, not so well throughout the rest of Asia. One day I would love to visit the southern tip of Korea. Um, I hear great things about Jeju Island. Well, what about the study of music itself? Here's a piece I'm sure we're all familiar with. Many of us were probably listening to it this morning. It's Robert Schumann's Fantasy in C. It's a, it's a fascinating piece, though, to think about why this is engaging and why it's innovative. The piece opens really without any established theme, without any established key. 
In fact, it's this anti-rhetorical dreamlike texture which Schumann quotes at the beginning of the piece, resounding through all the notes in the earth's colorful dream, there sounds a faint, long-drawn note for the one who listens in secret. And it isn't until we get 10 minutes into the piece, the 295th bar, where we finally have a perfect cadence taking us to a tonic, you know, a central key, and we understand what key we're in. And then we have a statement of the theme. In this case, it's a reference to Beethoven's On die Ferne Geliebte, My Distant Beloved. But what we realize in retrospect is that throughout the first 10 minutes of the piece, we've been hearing these motifs being quoted in reference to that Beethoven song that are drifting around in our mind and seem somewhat familiar, although at the time we couldn't place why. And then we get this moment of clarity 10 minutes in where, boom, we finally get the cadence. Um, here, let's listen to it. Why not? That's the Beethoven theme. And there's your first C major chord for a piece written in C, bar 295. Fascinating. Did Schumann study innovation? No. His mom wanted him to go to law school. I think he went to classes for two days before he dropped out. Uh, he wanted to be a poet. That didn't work out. Then he decided he wanted to be a tone poet, in part because he injured his hand and wasn't going to, going to be a, a performer of music. What did he study? He studied Bach and counterpoint almost every night. So here's one of the more innovative composers of the early Romantic era, and it's yet somebody who, while willingly broke from tradition, was a student of that tradition. Here's a picture of Robert and his wife, Clara. Christian Wolf one of the top composers of the 19th century after a premiere of one of his works at Stanford, I asked him, Christian, why were you, Cage, and Feldman so bent on breaking from tradition? Why was that so important? And he gave me a pretty honest answer. He said, I don't know. It just seemed like the thing to do. And I think that's true. <laughs> one of the more stressful things in graduate composition seminars is when they're passing out scores before you're listening to a new work. And what we learned is avoid the score because the piece is so complicated, we didn't know when to turn the page. And so we would sometimes then pretend that, oh, I'm going to close my eyes because I'm dreaming of this piece and I'm not really looking at the score. My strategy was just avoid um, getting the score at all. This is Brian Fernihau's second string quartet. I challenge you, tell me when to turn the page. you get it? I guess the point being, and here's music in Bauch from Stockhausen, where uh, at the end of the piece, you get scissors, you cut open the bowels of the eagle man, Mirren, you remove three music boxes and begin to play Tierkreis, the Zodiac. Actually a beautiful piece. But my question for you is, if you're stranded on a desert island, is this the piece you take with you if you have one? And the answer is maybe, because the piece includes a pair of scissors that will come in handy if you're stranded on a desert island. And again, nothing against Stockhausen, but all right, here now I'm motivating this, this uh, model I'm trying to create that I'm now going to apply to mobile apps soon enough. It's more than innovation. It has to be engagement. I've heard so many people say, well, it's not for me. It's for history to judge. That's translation for my music sucks. Nobody's going to listen to it. 
It would be like a startup coming in and saying, hi, we're building this prototype and we don't care about engagement. It's just a test. Or, hi, we're not planning on making revenue for the next five years. It's just a big market test. Um, usually that's code for, I don't know what I'm doing um, and I don't want you to assess whether or not I'm going to be successful. But the point is, it's not just about innovation. It's also about engagement. And that was something that was interesting, I think, in Schumann's works and some of these other folks that I've put in that upper right quadrant. By the way, this is a very scientific assessment of where these modern composers are placed, or this is simply my subjective assessment of the composers I like. It's, it's one of those. But the point being, there's this intersection between innovation and engagement that matters, and you kind of need both. It was like when I was applying to college and the dean of admissions was visiting, and I say, hey, should we take the hard classes and get the Bs, or should we take the easy classes and get the As? And she said, take the hard classes and get the As. And so that's kind of what we're talking about also in music. Well, I draw a parallel now to the applications we built at Smule, and the fact is we built some extremely innovative applications like the ocarina where you turn your phone into a flute-like instrument or IMT pane or sing or magic piano. All told, again, we've had over 400 million people use our products across the world, 50 million a month. But the fact is not all of them were engaging. And because they weren't engaging, they kind of didn't matter in the end. Um, let's look at a case study of some of this. Here's one example, our ocarina. So it was an extremely innovative product, capturing your wind by measuring friction against the microphone, to the extent that you could even use tonguing to articulate pitches as you would on a flute. Anybody recognize this song? Zelda. Why do we choose this song? Maybe in some ways, like Schumann, in his reference to Antifener Galipto, we realize that music sometimes that's familiar resonates and motivates, in this case, a trance. This is a song from a popular video game, and there's a demographic that it hits right between the eyes, and once they hear it, they're gone. They're someplace else, and they're back in the thousands and thousands of hours they played in the Nintendo Classic. And we knew that. And we knew that that was a hook that was gonna bring people into this product. And so sometimes, I guess the point I'm trying to make here in music tech is we're so hell-bent on innovation, we forget about engagement, we forget about the music. Well. And so if you look at this access for the Smule apps and kind of where we focused, we really don't focus on the ones that weren't engaging. In fact, a lot of them we pulled from the App Store, even though they're beautiful apps. Um, our Magic Fiddle, wonderful. Our Leaf Trombone, classic. We were on stage launching iOS 3 with Steve Jobs with that product. But they just didn't have the engagement. You know, there's another way of thinking about this, and it's not just necessarily innovation for engagement, but it's accessibility versus expressive capability. And I would say that history is littered with music startups that make one of two mistakes. They build products that are super accessible, but they aren't expressive. Or they build products that are incredibly expressive, but are accessible to no one. Like, for example, I was pitched by a startup from France, apologies if he's here, where he's saying, I have the most amazing product. You play three notes, and we can create a song from it. Even your cat could create music on this product. Do you want to hear it? And I said, probably not. Um, 
Now, it's fascinating to think about a cat creating music, but the fact is, having listened to it one time and noticed how innovative it was, do we really want to listen to it again? Uh, probably not. And so we have to think about not only the accessibility, but the expression, and, and the creative expression, because otherwise I think your startup hits this ceiling where it's just not fun anymore, right? But the challenge on the other spectrum is you build a product that's harder to play than a violin, and by the way, I think the violin is already really hard to play, and you're, if you're building a product that's harder than that, you know, good luck. So easier said than done, but what we found, it's this intersection between these two axes that really drives engagement, which ultimately is the measure of success. So let me end by returning to Bartok and the study of intrinsic, the, the study of the voice, this oral tradition of music being passed down. And here's a folk tune, uh, kind of a modern folk tune that's um, originated in southern Taiwan. And this particular duet is from a guy in San Francisco. And I think he's a restaurant worker on his break and another gentleman over in Indonesia. Hello, ni hao, si fo. Hello, wansang hao. We are touring, baby. Classic. So I'm going to cut the last example because of time constraints. But to me, this song is incredibly endearing. And to me, it resonates. And it is engaging, maybe not for all of us, but certainly for some of the people who are aware of the song. By the way, it's called Handkerchief, a symbol of uh, love between two couples. So in summary, capital, technology, culture, all impact the creation of startups. Diversity of community perhaps matters more than any of these. I found, at least in my career, it's not obvious to me how to teach entrepreneurism. I wonder if it's a waste of time. I wonder if instead we should study music and learn about why people are engaging in music and then translate that to new technologies and applications that can motivate more people to participate in music. But certainly that was the case for me. Um, so thanks so much for your time. I'll see if there's one question before we hand this back off to the chair. I've noticed that from what I've been learning as far as like being in the music industry world goes is is being an entrepreneur is kind of the way um, because it's always changing and you're not like if you keep doing the old way then it's it's the old way you kind of have to create a new way am I kind of correct you have to like think about new ways and what's creative I don't know so I agree I think perhaps to succeed as an artist and wonderful isn't that amazing to think about that yeah, you do have to differentiate, you do have to innovate, and maybe there's some parallels in entrepreneurism that can inform that path. But if your music isn't engaging 
you could be the most innovative person and I don't think it would matter. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is that it's just not innovation for its own sake. It's not just accessibility for its own sake. It's also expression. And it is ultimately, I think, about your music. Yes. Okay. All right, folks, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. <laughs>